You're listening to a special edition of the midweek edition of the 1208 Podcast. Welcome to a special edition episode. So last week at 1208 Greenwood, we launched a new Bible study on the book of Revelation. And this, of course, is a very confusing book. It's got about 800 million different ideas as to what it means. Uh, And uh, most of the time that you hear people talk about what it means, it's always about some future thing down from the road from here, or somebody has taken a passage and something happens in the world today, and people are like, ah, oh, that right there, the thing that just happened, that's this, that's the mark of the beast right there. So, you know, it's just a confusing book, because it is kind of about the future, but it's also kind of not. And because it gets so many strange things attributed to it, I wanted to make this uh, one special edition about an introduction to the book of Revelation, since that's what we just went over in our Bible study this past week. Now, part of the reason I'm doing this is because I think there are others who planned on making it to this class who missed the introduction class. And uh, in case they decide, like, okay, I missed one class, but I still want to go, well, you'll want to listen to this podcast first, because it's going to give, like, a general overview about some of the basics of Revelation. And then just to give you a taste of some of the things that we'll be talking about, we're just going to go through Revelation 1 and and point out some interesting little facts here and there so that you can see just how deep this book goes. And so you can understand that if you really want to know what John, the author, was talking about, then you've got to, you really got to kind of bear down. So we'll see some of that. So this is a taste of the Bible study we're doing, an introduction to Revelation, and then just one chapter of it. So let's start with genre. Okay. There's all kinds of genres of writing out there. We We know this, especially in music, right? You listen to punk or rock or techno, electronic. There's genres, there's subgenres. The list goes on and on. The same is true, of course, with writing. You know, you got science fiction, you've got uh, young adult, you've got dystopian future. There's just so many different genres of writing out there, myth and, and so on. So the same is true with Revelation. You know, there are plenty of genres during the book of Revelation. So what kind of writing is this book going to be? And this is one of the things that's very interesting about Revelation, actually. It's it's several different genres. It's not just one, you know? Uh, just And that's part of the reason it gets even more confusing, because sometimes we're reading uh, the book of Revelation in one form, and then the next moment we're reading it in another And then people get confused by this, and they're reading one part of it as a different genre from later part of the book, and they're confusing where it is. So let's talk about what it is from a genre perspective. Uh, First off, this is a letter, okay? If If you just take a listen through the book of Revelation or you read it, you're gonna find like John is writing to actual people. He He uh, writes seven, well, maybe he just wrote this one letter, but this one letter is supposed to go to seven different churches. So it is a letter to be distributed. And this is back when, of course, you don't have the printing press uh, and and writing's expensive. Like the book of Romans would have cost, I believe, over $1,000. I can't even remember the stat, but it's a, a lot of money. To write a book as big as Romans costs a lot of money because you couldn't just get the kind of 
things you needed to write for for cheap back then. So think of that this way. Revelation is a letter that's getting circulated among different churches. Uh, Seven different churches are supposed to read this thing, which means, of course, they get to check out each other's mail because there's uh, words to a church and then it, uh, they read it, and then it's passed on to the next church, and then they read it, and they all see what was said about each church. So with that being said, it is a letter. It's written to people. It's not meant for John to put up on a bookshelf entirely. It's meant to go to others so that they can read it, and it's for their specific lives. That's what letters are, right? If I pull a letter out of the mailbox, it's entitled to Jamin Bradley. I open it. I read it for myself. Revelation is partially that. It's written to churches. Hey, church over in Ephesus, I wrote this for you. Open it, read it for yourself. But I also wrote this next part for the church over in Thyatira. So pass it along and make sure that they get a chance to to read it too. So that's, that's the first thing. The genre of Revelation is a letter. Therefore, it's written to people. The next, though, is a prophecy. It's a prophecy, and that's actually part of the letter to the churches, right? It's kind of strange. John has knowledge about these churches because the Holy Spirit has illuminated his mind about the churches. So he's got words of prophetic uh, uh, anointing on what he's saying. And, and so the prophetic words he has to the churches is like, here's what God says about your church. You've done A, B, and C. Uh, God says D, E, and F, and you know the list just goes on and on. But it's inspired. It's not just his own words he's writing, right? You go to the Old Testament and you find prophetic books everywhere. They write um, from, from God's perspective. The prophets are hearing the Holy Spirit talk to them, and so they're saying to kings and queens and to, to countries and to all of God's people, here's what God has to say about all these things. So it's not just a letter, it's also a prophecy. Therefore, we have this interesting conglomerate of a prophetic letter <laughs> written to, to uh, seven different churches and to the church as a whole for them to all take this in. So if you want to feel better, if you want to know better what prophecy is like, all you got to do is open the Old Testament. You got the major, minor prophets all throughout the Old Testament. They have all these kind of words that God gives them to give to others. So be thinking when you're reading Revelation, you're reading something similar to the major and minor prophets of old, who the Holy Spirit spoke to them, and then they had words to give people as well. And sometimes, uh, well, this is important too, okay? Prophecy is not always about the future. It's not. That, That has to be said because the church in general today is so modernized and so enlightened that when we hear the word prophecy, we, we hear it said with a, like a whisper, like prophecy, you know, like, uh, hey, if someone gave you a prophecy, it's about something that's coming down the road. It's fortune telling. And that's not what prophecy is. Prophecy is, is uh, 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 sometimes it's about the future. But a lot of times, it's about the present, the right now. And many times, it's the connecting of the two together. God says, do this now so that this down the road doesn't happen, or do this now so that this down the road will happen. So prophecies are not all about the future. They're more often than not actually about the present. So you got to make sure that you take 
take that into account when you understand this letter. Uh, all of Revelation is not about the future. In fact, this is going to startle a lot of people, especially those of us who grew up in a left-behind kind of of world. But a lot of scholars would say that much of Revelation has already passed, right? This was a letter written 2,000 years ago to churches, and it was written to their specific situations. And so... Uh, there is this understanding that a lot of revelation, you, you, it may already be behind us to some extent. Not all of it, of course. And this is where some scholars get messed up. Those who are especially enlightened and want to take all the supernatural aspects out of this letter, some go so far to say, like, it's already done. Everything's happened. Jesus has already come back. And you're like, what are you talking about? It's already come back. But some would say that. Some would say that in uh, 70 AD, like one generation into the early church, Jesus came back and and did all of Revelation and now so on and so forth. And that's just, it misunderstands so many of the themes, right? The world is not perfect yet. We're not a new heaven, a new earth. Yes, Jesus does have rain right now, but the rain in its fullness is still yet to come. So to say that we're already in the the fullness of the end times is, in my opinion, very, very incorrect, um, because we're so far away from seeing the new Eden that Revelation is is talking about coming, and we still see the evil out there warring against us. So, uh, again, prophecy is about the future. It's also about the present, and uh, much of Revelation, understanding it from a prophetic tone, Therefore, it tells us that, yes, some of the book is still yet to happen, but perhaps a fair amount of it has already passed because the churches that it was written to, those churches aren't around anymore, or at least not in the same capacity that they were back then. Okay, so that's two genres. It's a letter, it's a prophecy, but then check this out. It's also an apocalypse. Mm, Yeah, so when we think apocalypse, we think of all kinds of movies, you know, where the world has been torn apart, it's a desert, and so on and so forth. Uh, that's not exactly what an apocalypse is in apocalyptic writing. So apocalypse is a short-lived uh, genre, uh, especially Jewish genre. If you ever read the book of First Enoch, which inspired uh, Bible writers in their writing, if you check out, I think it's Second Peter, Second Peter references, or maybe Jude, Jude references First uh, Enoch very uh, intently, um, but this is important to us in the extent that, like, okay, so if we checked out First Enoch, what would it feel like? And if you read First Enoch, you would be like, "I've read something like this before." It's called the Book of Revelation. You'll you'll understand. Like, I'm in the same exact genre. I thought Revelation was just weird and that it was its own thing, but as I read this Book of First Enoch, I'm like, wait a minute. I've sensed this kind of weirdness before <laughs> in in Revelation. It, and that's what happened to me. Last year when I read the book of First Enoch for the first time, I was like, wow, this book, I've never felt like anything came close to Revelation, but this book is just so similar in its feel and, and the way things are are stated. It just, uh, it, the only book First Enoch reminds me of is is revelation, perhaps. So why is that important? It's important because 
it shows you that John is writing much of his prophecy in an apocalyptic kind of genre, a genre we don't have anymore, and therefore a genre that we don't really understand at all, right? I mean, if I had read First Enoch, if I was in Jesus's time and I read First Enoch, and then the book of Revelation came out, then me as a first century Christian, I'd be like, oh, so I see what John's doing when he's writing Revelation, because it's kind of like Enoch. And if I understand what Enoch is like, I understand what John is like. All that to say, since most of us don't have the apocalyptic uh, genre in our minds anymore, because it's not out there anymore, we just have no idea what it is. It's completely foreign to us. And as far as we can tell, Revelation is the only book out there like it. And so we have nothing to liken it to, and therefore it just makes the book even weirder, right? Like think of this. Think of it this way. Uh, down the road, let's say that uh, humanity is vastly wiped out, technology is completely done away with, and now there's kind of these like new uh, cavemen-like human beings uh, living on the earth. They have no technology. It's all been done away with, right? These human beings then, while they're uncovering our world from a long time ago, they come across sci-fi. And they start reading these sci-fi books, and they're like, what is this? Did this happen? (laughs) Were there an actual war of the worlds in which these aliens showed up, right? So they they would start like seeing this old writing of sci-fi that they don't have anymore, and they'd be like, what do I do with this? I know that seems like a big jump, but that is kind of what it's like for us. We're 2,000 years removed from a genre called apocalyptic. And so when we pick that up, we're like, what is this? Did this happen? Will it happen? And the answer is yes, but you have to understand the apocalyptic writing a little bit better to understand what it is that John's communicating. Okay. Hope that helps out. So again, the book of Revelation is three genres all in one, making it very, very unique. It is a letter to actual people. It is a prophecy inspired by the Holy Spirit to speak over Christians and actual people groups, and it's an apocalypse, a genre that, again, we just don't understand anymore because we don't have anything like it. And apocalyptic movies today or post-apocalyptic, that is not the same thing at all. Okay, so that's the genre. Let's talk a little bit about the author here. Uh, the author reveals himself right at the beginning. He says that uh, he's the servant, John, and uh, that makes most of us think of John the Apostle, the one who wrote, uh, you know, the Gospel of John, the one who wrote First, Second, and Third John, and that is completely fine to think of uh, him as the author. Here's the thing: when you get into uh, scholarly studies about who authors of books of your Bibles are, you're going to find that scholars just love to fight about this. They like to, you know, look at every single word and try to be like, no, the John of the Gospel of John would never say this in Revelation, so on and so forth. And some of those arguments are important and good, uh, but other scholars would say, look, there's a lot of what John says in Revelation that is very, very similar to all his other writings. So, Just because there's some stuff in his writing that doesn't match the other stuff doesn't mean we should say that it's not John the Apostle. 
Uh, I, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, either way, to me, it, it doesn't really matter because I believe the Bible as we have it is inspired by God and that he wanted us to have it in this form. So as to what John wrote it, it doesn't fully matter to me in the end, right? Hebrews, for example, we just really have no idea who wrote the book of Hebrews. And the, the person who wrote Hebrews never identifies themselves. So we don't know. Does that make it less scripture to me? No. I know some who have fought to say, well, it's, it's not because we don't know who it was. But the church held this up as an inspired book that needed to, to uh, uh, stick in our Bible to shed light on who Jesus is. So uh, again, author to me is not incredibly important, though uh, I think I would tend to lead that it could be John the Apostle because it does share plenty of themes with the other books that John wrote. Plus, if you say that uh, John wrote some different things and used different phrases in Revelation, therefore it must be a different John, I just don't think that logic stands up very well, because, you know, uh, this is a different kind of writing. And even myself, you know, I I just, uh, I've worked on four books over time, and every time I put out a new book, some, some of the writing feels like Jamin, but some of it has improved in some form. And if you were to look at some of the fiction I've written versus some of the nonfiction, you might be able to tell even less that it's me because it it sounds incredibly different. In the same way, if John wrote Revelation and wrote an apocalypse, well, an apocalypse is going to feel incredibly different from a, a book like a gospel. They're written from different perspectives, meant to be different kind of genres. So there's a good chance that they won't just line up perfectly. Um, that being said, however, it, it could be an, a prophet named John. We know that much uh, because this book is prophetic. So maybe the early church, if it wasn't John the Apostle, maybe the early church knew of a prophet named John, since John was a common name at the time. And they all just knew like, oh, John the prophet of of in our churches, he's he sent us this letter, so let's check it out because he's an important symbol that we all all pay attention to because we know God speaks to him. So whether it's an apostle or a prophet, either case, uh, to me, it is is scripture. Okay, so there you go. You got your genre, you got your author. Um, I want to talk about uh, uh, a little bit more about the way in which this author writes. And to get into that, you have to understand, like, if you want to know the book of Revelation and what it's saying, then guess what? You have to know what the other 65 books of the Bible are saying, and then some. (laughs) Some beyond those 65 books. Why? Because John quotes books constantly. Now, I know people will come up with uh, different kinds of stats as to how many times John references other books, but I'm just going to read a quote here from Eugene Peterson. Yeah, so uh, before he passed away, he released this book, a devotional of sorts, called As Kingfishers Catch Fire. And here's what his own stats led him to see. He said, Pastor John of Patmos knew his Bible inside and out. The Revelation has 404 verses. In those 404 404 verses, there are, and take a minute and think about how many references do you think there are in 404 verses? Uh, in our Bible study, I heard somewhere around 60, 70, 80. And think of your own. What number would you say? Okay. 
This will probably shock you. In those 404 verses, there are 518 references to earlier scriptures, but there is not a singular direct quote. All the references are allusions. Here's a pastor who is absolutely immersed in scripture and submits himself to it. Okay, so pause there uh, with, with that quote. Right here, we see Eugene Peterson saying, like, this author, John, was, like, so deep into the scriptures that he is constantly referencing Old Testament passages, so much so that in order for him to make allusions to verse, to, to you know, the last 65 books of the Bible, he's got to be referencing those books more than one time in some verses of Revelation. That's impressive. You know, back back in ancient culture, you, you couldn't just write everything down. Uh, you didn't just have paper and pen to just go, well, let me make a note. Let me go put that in my journal really quick. Like, that's just not how it worked. They didn't have those kind of supplies yet. Um, but at the same time, you know, they they got used to memorizing things. It was a very oral culture, and it's not just oral in the sense like, oh, yeah, my friend said so-and-so, so here's what he said, you know, like that kind of like hearsay or like, uh, I kind of remember this. No, they would like memorize stuff very deeply. And here we see that John of Patmos had the, the like the entire Bible of his time memorized pretty well. I mean... I don't know that he just had a bunch of scrolls on him while he's exiled on Patmos. He just seems to be able to to bring it up left and right. And this is a pastor uh, is important to me because here's what I've seen sometimes. I've been in churches where the pastor gets up on the stage and they just want to preach with the freedom of the Holy Spirit. And so they'll just start talking and they'll hope that God will show up and give them something to preach on and illuminate what they're doing. Here's what happens when God doesn't show up too strongly. The pastor ends up preaching the same exact message as the week before because they haven't been doing any studying outside of that sometimes. So they just end up regurgitating the same thing over and over again and hoping the Holy Spirit will illuminate a little something in between there. Now, sometimes the Holy Spirit does show up and do that, uh, but I've never seen the Holy Spirit show up and dump a bunch of passages into someone's mind that they never had memorized before, okay? I've never seen someone up on a stage like, oh, uh, Zechariah 4.12 suddenly popped into my mind and it must read this. Open up your Bibles. Tell me if I'm correct. In other words, you know, the Holy Spirit doesn't just like make you know things that you didn't know before. He might reveal something to you. And we've all felt the Holy Spirit reveal something to us before and just blows our minds when he does it. But he doesn't just like, you know, drop in an entire passage you didn't have memorized before. Or if he does, it's like an incredibly rare miracle. <laughs> Anyways, I say that uh, because that's important for for you to understand a little something about John here. John doesn't just have like Jesus being like, ah, now reference this verse in Zechariah, this verse in Malachi, this verse from Isaiah. I mean, the Holy Spirit might be guiding him in those directions. I've sensed that when I'm writing, when suddenly I have a passage pop into my head. I'm like, ah, what was that? Uh, there's a passage somewhere 
in Isaiah that says something about, and then I'll Google what I'm trying to find and I'll find it, right? But they didn't have Google back then. So for John, he's already got these books deep inside himself. He's not Googling them real quick. And the Holy Spirit's not just saying, all right, now reference this right here. I'll, I'll tell you what the passage says while you write it down. Uh, they're not just like, their eyes don't roll in the back of their head and they start writing scripture. That's that's not how we got our Bible, okay? Um, so all that being said, it tells us something very important about John. He was immersed in scripture so much so that he is referencing passages more than one time in several different verses. He has a lot to say uh, about uh, what the entire Bible says. And so he's putting it all together. The Holy Spirit is helping him take 518 references and blend it into the book that we call Revelation. And therefore, I would say John's a very good person to trust, right? I mean, he's got the Bible, not just uh, something he reads, but something that's deep within him. So that that gives us a, a lot of space to trust him as he starts writing it together. You can just imagine uh, the Holy Spirit kind of like co-laboring with him to to write this book and reminding him of passages to interweave throughout it. Um, but this book is not just an entirely new book because it's referencing plenty of old old themes all the way throughout it. Okay, so. That's just a little bit to understand uh, kind of the character of your author who who gave us this book. Uh, and uh, if you that also means if you want to understand this book, again, you have to understand the last 65 books of the Bible. And on top of that, you might even need to understand some of the other books outside of the Bible around the time that this was written. Because again, we don't have apocalypses in those other 65 books, but we do have them uh, outside of scripture, which means John was reading not just scripture, but he was reading other books that he considered important during his time. Otherwise, he wouldn't know how to write in the apocalyptic genre because he wouldn't have read an apocalyptic book. So, so yeah, it's helpful to know the 65 books before Revelation, and it's helpful to know books outside of the Bible as well. And once you have that, suddenly Revelation starts blowing your mind with all this new kind of information. You start seeing like, ah, he's, he's tracing us back to this psalm. Ah, he's tracing us back to Isaiah. And it starts to shed light on what he's doing. Uh, this happens to me, for example, when I read Narnia. Like there, there are times when I'm reading C.S. Lewis's Narnia where I, I just want to cry or I'm watching the movie and I'm just starting to cry. <laughs> and, and the reason... Uh, a lot of times why is because you can see that C.S. Lewis is referencing Bible verses allegorically. He's alluding to them, but he's never saying them directly. He's just trying to embody these Bible verses in his characters, especially Aslan. He's trying to embody uh, a Bible verse here or there inside of Aslan. I think that's why I cry so much because Sometimes, you know, I read my Bible and I read a good word. I'm like, ah, that's a good word. But then I watch Aslan act it out and I can feel myself thinking, ah, I, I see what Lewis is doing here with this passage over here. And now I'm I'm physically feeling this passage because it's not just uh, uh, new to me here in the scriptures, but it's new to me as I watch it acted out in this 
this Aslan character. I don't just read about love. I see and sense and feel the love. So revelation is important from that aspect. Um, I imagine there are plenty who read Narnia and like those moments will stick out to them, but it won't stick out to them in the way that it would if they knew what Lewis was referencing, right? In the same way, revelation won't always stick out to you as much as it would to uh, John, because you may not know what he's referencing. So if you have a good study Bible, uh, just as you're reading through it, pay attention to the numbers and then look at the bottom of the page where it shows those numbers. And it'll tell you all these different verses, like go check out this verse because we think John's referencing this. You're not going to find all 518 references down there, um, but you'll, you'll find a few here and there. Okay. Uh, So the book of Revelation, uh, one last thing before we kind of dive into just this one chapter. I want to say this, this is important. Uh, We won't understand Revelation fully in this Bible study that we're doing at church, and no one does. No one should, no one can. And this is clearly seen in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, okay? So in the Old Testament, you have all these prophetic words about Jesus, about what he's going to do, about how he's going to die on a cross, but still people didn't get it. They didn't expect Jesus to show up the way he did or fully even do the things he did. And they definitely didn't expect Jesus to die on a cross, right? Even though we can look at the Old Testament and be like, oh, hey, we see how Jesus did all these things when we read through the Old Testament. Now now we can see it. Well, the, the people of Jesus' time couldn't see that. They had no expectation for a lot of what Jesus did. But here's what's interesting. After Jesus rises from the dead, you might remember he, he uh, kind of like hides himself. He, I don't know how he does it, but somehow he walks with his disciples after he's risen from the dead, and he begins to talk to his disciples about himself. They just don't know it's Jesus because Jesus has somehow masked himself from them being able to tell he's Jesus. And he begins to tell them all the different scriptures he's fulfilled. In fact, let's take a look at the verse right now. All right, so Jesus sees his disciples talking. He approaches them, and then he begins to walk with them. And it says, uh, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. Then picking up in Luke 24, 17, it says, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And then they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he's referring to the crucifixion of Jesus. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here's here's the crucial verse. 
And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Right here, we have these disciples who are just unable to understand who Jesus is, even though the prophetic words are staring them in the face, in the prophets, in Moses, throughout all the scriptures. But then Jesus walks up to them and he begins to tell them, okay, so in hindsight, now that Jesus has been crucified, now that I have been crucified, think of this passage in this light. Think of this passage in this light. And Moses, and what Moses said about this, what the prophet said about this, what all the scriptures are alluding to in what Jesus did. So this is just highly important because you see this understanding that we actually can't understand the scriptures in full sometimes until after they've happened. And part of the reason you you see this even more so is because just as humans have free will, spiritual beings have free will too, right? Because the Bible tells us that uh, uh, if the if the supernatural powers had known what would happen if they crucified Jesus, they never would have done it. A lot of times, for some reason, we think Satan is omnipotent. I don't know why, but that's just often what goes through our minds. God knows everything that's happening. Satan knows everything that's happening. And so we end up painting this picture of a Satan who who knows what God plans on doing and all the ways in which he's going to work. But here, when we see that if the powers knew what would happen if they crucified Jesus, we realize that Satan doesn't know what uh, God is doing. So in the same way, in the same way that these disciples are like, oh, now I get it. Now that Jesus has explained to me how he fulfills the passages, now I get it. Guess what? Now Satan, who also knows the scripture, right? Because he quotes scripture to Jesus when he's trying to tempt him. Now Satan looks at uh, at uh, all of history now that he's crucified Jesus because he entered into Judas, the Bible tells us. So therefore Jesus or Satan set Jesus up to get crucified. Uh, now we see that Satan's like, oh, I see what I did. Ah, oh, I got tricked. I was baited. I was fooled. Which means what? It means like God intentionally masked the scriptures so that we wouldn't fully understand it until after it had happened. Yes, we would understand some of it, but not all of it until after it had happened. Because if if Jesus's if the people of Jesus's time had understood all the scriptures uh, perfectly about Jesus, then so would have Satan. And so I say that about Revelation. If you think that you have figured out Revelation a hundred percent, then that's bad news because it means that Satan has figured it out too, and that that's not good news for anybody because then Satan knows what he's battling against. He knows the battle plan, but that's not. That's not how war works. And when we look at this spiritual warfare, we don't see God just straight up telling us fully in detail every last thing he's going to do, because that would just end up telling Satan in detail fully every last thing that he's going to do. Now, we get the general premise, right? God wins. God does everything that that he needs to do to overthrow Satan completely and to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth and to bring his his reign to the earth. And so we get that general premise throughout Revelation. But there are going to be some things in Revelation where you're going to be like, 
I just don't understand what it's saying here. And the reason you're not going to understand it is simply because we're not meant to understand it in full right now. But one day in hindsight, after God's established the new kingdom, we're going to look back and be like, ah, I see what you did right there. I see why you said that. Now I get it. Because Jesus is going to be interpreting it to us. He's going to show us the fullness of of what he meant. So anytime that you hear somebody, you know, become famous because of some new interpretation of Revelation and how it lines up with something that's happened today, sure, feel free to test it, but just know like, you know, Jesus didn't know when he was coming back. The the fullness of details as to how God was going to do it was even veiled to God in flesh. Jesus himself saying, "I don't know all the details. I don't <laughs> I don't know when I'm coming back." Uh, that right there should be monumental to us. If Jesus doesn't know, no guy living in his parents' basement trying to decipher this book as some kind of cryptic code, they don't know either. Okay. All right. So there's that. That's kind of your introduction into Revelation. It's a book about uh, all kinds of things, including the day of the Lord. Uh, this is a, a theme that runs throughout Scripture. The, it's one of the prophecies that's not fulfilled yet. Okay. I remember I was in church once when uh, a, a pastor just said, like, all the prophecies have been fulfilled in Jesus, and here's how many prophecies that is. And so they, I think they just gave a list of how many prophecies are in the Bible and then said Jesus has fulfilled all of them. And I would say that's not true. There are a lot of prophecies all throughout the Bible that have not been fulfilled yet because they were about the day of the Lord, the, the time when Jesus comes back, Okay. So that's part of the reason that this book, you know, it may be about uh, uh, the time in which it was written, but it is still about the future. It hasn't all been fulfilled yet. Jesus hasn't come back yet for the day of the Lord when all is made right and judgment is poured out, and uh, uh, that just hasn't happened. And that's not new with Revelation. That, That was a theme running throughout the prophets and running throughout the Old Testament. They keep talking about this time in which God will come back and judge and and uh, uh, overthrow all of the false kingdoms and establish his own kingdom. We've been waiting for that. So to say that Jesus has fulfilled all the prophecies already is not entirely true because there's still several prophecies ahead of us still in the day of the Lord. All right. We're going to jump into Revelation 1, and I'm just going to pause here and there to kind of give you a taste of like, these are some of the things that we're going to talk about in this class, okay? You know, I think it's just helpful because you never know what to expect with a Revelation class. So if what you hear on this podcast episode is like, oh, yeah, I'd like to hear more things like that, then that's kind of more the taste of what you'll be getting as we go down the road. All right, so I'm going to read it, and I'm just going to pause as we're reading through it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Already, we're going to pause there on that word soon, right? Uh, I had a friend who said that uh, one of the hardest things for them to get past when it came to Christianity was the fact that Jesus had uh, said that he would be back in a generation. If you go and check out the Gospels, you'll see this famous quote. Uh, Jesus says, you know, uh, stars are going to fall from the skies, there's going to be earthquakes, there are going to be people turning against each other, so on and so forth. Uh, now, there's actually a lot of prophetic words Jesus gave right there 
that happened. I mean, the stars haven't fallen from the sky. And even that, as we're going to see in Revelation, stars are oftentimes considered to be uh, the false gods or angels even. Um, But uh, earthquakes happened. People turned against each other. There was famines, as Jesus said there would be. Even the New Testament records those famines coming. So by all means, the people of Jesus' time expected that Jesus was coming back soon, so much so that even, uh, even Paul, Paul said, you know what, uh, if, if you don't feel like you have to get married, then don't get married, because right now is not the time <laughs> to be concerned about such things, right? And the only reason you would say something like that is because you're like, Jesus is going to be back any time now, so is marriage really the most important thing on the table right here? Even uh, when you look forward a little bit, if you get into Second Peter, uh, you see Peter having to address the fact that Jesus hasn't come back, because outside of the famines and the earthquakes and all these things, one of the extra things Jesus said was uh, that he was going to um, be back within a generation. He said he didn't know when, only God knew when, but he would be back within one generation, which again for my friend was like, that didn't happen. So I struggle with this Christianity thing on, on that particular verse, which is understandable why you'd struggle, because was Jesus wrong? You know, what do you do with that? And I don't think he uh, was wrong. I think it. I think we just need to understand how prophecy works, okay? In the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, you find out that prophecy, like you are to judge prophets by if they're wrong or right. Do they give a prophetic word and does it happen? Then they're a prophet. Do they give a prophetic word and it doesn't happen? then they're not a prophet. However, once we get to the book of Jeremiah, God actually expands on the role of a prophet, and it's not as cut black and white as it was in Deuteronomy. Once we get to Jeremiah, God takes Jeremiah out to uh, watch a guy make a, a, a pot on a potter's wheel, okay? So he's got this clay, he's making a pot, and God tells Jeremiah, look, just as this potter can like smash that pot if he wants when he's done with it, I can do that too. So if I give you, Jeremiah, if I give you a prophetic word and I see people change their life, if I tell people, uh, you need to get your act together or this judgment's coming on you, if I say that and then people get their life together, I'm going to change the prophetic word and say, never mind. And we see that come true in Nineveh, right? Jonah goes to Nineveh and he tells the people in Nineveh, hey, you guys got to repent. God's going to bring judgment and the people repent. And then God's like, never mind, I'm not going to bring judgment now because they repented. So God changes the prophetic word. And just as he told Jeremiah, like, it's not as cut as like you pronounce it and then it happens. Now I'm trying to show you that like I have full control. So I tell you the word of judgment and then I'm going to tell you if I'm going to follow through based on where things go. I would suggest to us, and this isn't new to me, this is a a really good book I read uh, called The Parousia of, uh, I forget the rest of the title, (laughs) Um, but it's about the delay of, of the return of Jesus. And they would suggest that Jesus said he'd be back in a generation, and maybe there's this possibility that God is just saying, uh, yeah, that was the plan. But based on how humanity has responded, and I don't know if that's a good or bad thing, um, but based on how humanity has responded, I've actually changed the plan, and Jesus will be coming back later now. 
Now, uh, the people in the New Testament had different ways to try to deal with the fact that Jesus hadn't come back. If you go to Second Peter, you see like this was one of the later New Testament books written. And Second Peter is just like, okay, Jesus said he'd be back. People are scoffing at us. They're making fun of us. But Christians, when, when you're made fun of, just know this, uh, Jesus will return. And that one day with God is like a, a thousand years. And so Peter just more or less like, this is the end of that generation. Jesus said he'd be back. We're all dying and people are judging us because we said he'd be back soon. And he, he hasn't come yet. And here's Peter saying, even though we're dying and passing away, just remember like one generation in God's time, it's a lot longer. So let's just give him the space. And furthermore, Peter goes on to be like, the reason he hasn't come back yet is because he, he wants more to be saved. So uh, I suggest to you that we just live in Peter's understanding there. 2,000 years later, we still proclaim God wants more to be saved, and so we're we're still waiting for the fullness of that prophecy that's been delayed because God wants uh, more to come to, to know him. So there's that. When the Bible says that uh, these things in Revelation are going to soon take place, Man, that's a loaded statement because, again, some of this did take place soon. As we're going to see in future Bible studies, some of this has already passed in in uh, the early times of, of Christianity, okay? As to the fullness of the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back, they expected Jesus to come back soon, and Revelation is probably talking about that. That's coming soon. So yes, some of it came soon, some of it was expected to come soon, and some of it we found has been delayed. Now, I have a whole chapter detailing uh, more of that delay in my book, The Rush and the Rest. Uh, contact me if you want a copy of that, a uh, digital copy of that, and I can get that to you so that you can learn more about that. But yes, the Bible is writing, thinking Jesus is going to make Revelation come in fullness very soon. All right, let's continue. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Okay, let's uh, pause again. Again, there's a lot to look at here. Um, this angel that brings the word of revelation to John, this is an interesting statement. So in the Bible, you will find these motifs from time to time about interpreting angels, but we actually don't have an angel come and show this revelation to John right at the beginning. Even though John just said God sent his angel to his servant John, we're actually going to find uh, that it's Jesus himself who comes before John and begins to, to reveal the revelation to John. So this gives us reason to pause. We're like, wait a minute. So is Jesus an angel? What? God sent his angel, but the angel that we see is Jesus. So is it, how does this work? Are we just like missing details? Is it skipping over that angel? Because there's other angels throughout the Bible. Or, I mean, throughout Revelation. Is he referring to a different Revelation? Is just the wording off? There is one possibility that you could consider uh, to make this statement make sense. Okay. And this too, actually get into the rush and the rest, uh, right towards the beginning of it. There is an angel in the Old Testament called the angel of the Lord. Now, 
If you're like me, your whole life, whenever you've read that statement, you're like, okay, so an angel from God showed up. But when you actually look at this uh, statement, when you look at all of the passages about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, what you actually come to find is that the angel of the Lord is a specific angel. He is the angel of the Lord. He's not just a angel of the Lord. And he shows up all over the place, including very important passages uh, like, uh, like that of when God reveals his name as Yahweh, when he reveals his name from the burning bush to Moses. That wasn't just a burning bush. If you read it closely, you'll see that the angel of the Lord was inside of that burning bush. Now, I know this is going to sound crazy, but this is actually an idea put forth by actual scholars, not just crazy people. The angel of the Lord operates differently from other angels in the Bible. The angel of the Lord, um, an angel is a messenger, okay? That's like the literal definition of an angel. But this angel, the angel of the Lord, does more than just send messages, Okay, he he he'll bring a message from God, but then if that human like asks the angel a question, rather than go back and ask God what the answer is, the angel will just give an answer himself as though he himself is God. I know that, that sounds strange, but you actually keep coming across this angel doing things that you would expect only God would be able to do. In fact, Joshua at one point comes and like worships this angel, and the angel allows that as though that is an acceptable thing to do before him. But if you look in Revelation, there's John at one point tries to worship an angel, and that angel's like, no, 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 don't worship me. I, I'm just here to help. I mean, only worship God. So if you were to look at all the passages about the angel of the Lord, and the best resource you'll find on this is Michael Heiser, The Unseen Realm. He spent a lot of his, I think, his dissertation on this particular subject. Um, when you look at all the passages in the Old Testament about the angel of the Lord, as strange as it sounds, even some scholars will say it is quite possible that this angel is either like a manifestation of God himself or maybe a, a pre-incarnate version of Christ. Uh, because the Bible tells us that Jesus has been around since the very beginning. John starts that way, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Uh, understanding like Jesus has been around since the very, very beginning. And so, what if in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is Jesus before the incarnation? Okay? So, when Jesus is... Uh, becomes incarnate, it means that he puts on human skin. But what if before Jesus put on human skin being born of a man and woman, what if he uh, put on this identity as an angel? It gets a lot deeper than that, and I know it almost sounds blasphemous, but like if you if you read a lot of the studies on this angel is you you'll find that like it's it's not as far-fetched as it sounds. And that will make some passages in the Old Testament really uh, jump out at you uh, when you especially read about this angel, if you start thinking of it, is this Jesus? So anyways, I say all that to say, John just said that the revelation was made known to him 
by God sending his angel to the servant John. Now, the angel of the Lord doesn't show up in the New Testament. He's only in the Old Testament, which should just further kind of the case of the idea of it being Jesus, because after Jesus comes in the New Testament, there's no need for that angel anymore. Um, But right here, we have John saying that God sent his angel. So what if in John's time, people had already started saying, now that we understand Jesus, now that we put together this whole Christianity uh, movement, what if uh, that angel that we keep seeing in the Old Testament that acts like God, what if that was Jesus before he was born from uh, uh, Mary? And so if John was thinking that way, then that would be the poss- a possible reason in which John would say, God sent his angel to me to talk to me. And then you fast forward and you see that no angel shows up to talk to him, but Jesus shows up to talk to him. Maybe John's just saying, you all know what I'm talking about. The angel of the Lord, his angel came and talked to me, Jesus Christ himself. It's just a possibility. Uh, Unfortunately, we can't cement that down because we don't know what John was thinking. But if there is any possible reference to the angel of the Lord in the New Testament, this one right here in Revelation 2 is pretty much the only, sorry, Revelation 1 is pretty much the only place where we might find reference to the angel of the Lord. All right, continue on. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Just reference right there that they read aloud. Uh, This was ancient culture. In fact, it was odd to uh, read anything privately or to yourself. Uh, Or, or, well, sorry, you might read privately, but you still probably read aloud when you read privately. So a lot of people couldn't read back then. It was a small percentage that could read. But when people read, they just read it out loud. They, They didn't just read it in their heads like we often do today. And that's why you'll see throughout Revelation, you'll see, uh, blessed are they who read this out loud, um, and you'll see, um, blessed are those who hear it, things like that. The statements are synonymous, because to read is to vocalize, and to vocalize is to be heard, so reading, hearing, it's it's all kind of the same in, in the ancient world. Uh, verse four, John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Okay. So we just flipped from introduction to the letter genre grace to you and peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the Kings on earth. Back up. Let's talk about the seven spirits before God's throne. This has always weirded me out. Ever since I was a young kid, I never understood that expression. I was like, (laughs) I thought there was only one Holy Spirit. Why is there seven now? And uh, this is confusing and kind of hard to explain because John is going to use the number seven a lot throughout the Bible. And uh, most people say that he uses the word seven for completeness reasons, okay? So something is complete, it's full. And that goes back to Genesis, because on the seventh day, God rested as though, like, you know, it's the fullness, it's the completion of creation. 
This, this is fine. You could understand it that way. That is the most popular way to understand the reason as to why John uses the number seven constantly. It's never fully satisfied me. It, it feels like it's kind of weird in some respects. Um, but one of the other proposals I have heard given is that seven is actually more like uh, it's a number for to say like kind of divine authority or uh, divine revelation. And and when you look at uh, what seven often gets teamed up with, you're going to see like there's sometimes connections to the supernatural. So to some extent, I think that that can make sense too. But that's something even myself, I'm still chewing over. But why seven spirits before God's throne? Well, some would say that uh, this is reference to the Holy Spirit in seven parts. So if you go back to, I think it's Zechariah, no, it's Isaiah. If you go back to Isaiah, you're going to see one passage where Isaiah kind of lists seven characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And so they would say, like, this is an allusion back to those seven characteristics right here. John is is referring to the seven-part Holy Spirit who carries the fullness of this prophecy. That's one way you could look at it. To me, it just it seems odd, right? I mean, it just seems too easy to start thinking of the Holy Spirit as seven different spirits. And I feel like that, especially in early Christianity, would be a, a hard move for John to make. Because just keep in mind, John, John and the rest of the Bible writers are trying to convince people that Jesus is not just the Son of God, but that Jesus is God himself, and that the Holy Spirit is the, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, alive in us. And this made the Jews super angry. Super angry. I mean, they, they couldn't deal with this idea. You know, the one of the most common prayers is the Shema. Our God is one. God is one. And we agree with that as Christians. God is one. We just believe you find him in three forms, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But uh, uh, the Jews weren't able to hear that. No, no, no. You're saying he's three. He's one. And so this is just important to us because, I don't know, if John if John's really saying like... <laughs> Uh, the Holy Spirit in seven parts, I just feel like John's making making life harder for himself, right? Because then you see, I feel like the Jews of, of his time would be like, whoa, hold up. Now you're saying there's God the Father, God the Son, and God in, in the Spirit, and there's seven spirits. Hold up. You guys are, are not uh, believing in just one God anymore. So that's part of the reason I always think it's kind of weird that he would say seven spirits, because I think even people today, they read that, they're like, whoa, hold up, God has seven Holy Spirits? Because that, that was a way that I struggled with it when I was a kid. I would suggest that another possibility as to how to read this, and perhaps a easier possibility to understand this, is to recognize the seven spirits before his throne as the seven archangels that were uh, known in in the time that uh, Revelation was written. So these lists actually vary. It's part of the reason it's hard to say that completely, because there's sometimes a list of four archangels, sometimes there's a list of seven archangels. But you find these archangels in apocalyptic literature, okay? You find uh, Michael, right? You find him in the Bible as well. You also find Gabriel and these other archangels. So what if... Again, we just submerge our mind in the ancient world, 
And rather than say it's a seven-part Holy Spirit or get confused and think that there's seven Holy Spirits, <laughs> what if we just say, hang on, what if he's just talking about the archangels around, around his throne, that God has these other beings he's created to, to work his works, to do his, his, his uh, uh, you know, carry out his commands and do these things. Like, that's not blasphemous. That's not weird. And that just makes total sense that you might imagine not seven angels on God's throne, not seven spirits on God's throne, but just these other beings in the room who work with God and are known as the spirits around God's throne. And just so you know, that isn't uh, weird either. Angels and other writing in apocalyptic writing, I think even in First Enoch, you're going to find some spots where angels are called spirits instead of angels. That's just part of the way that uh, uh, ancient writers would write about angels synonymously, because they're spiritual beings. So therefore, angels, spirits, to them, they could be the same things. Okay, so that's just that one part. The seven spirits before God's throne, and personally, I kind of opt more for the... Uh, the the seven archangels, though I think you could also say uh, a seven part Holy Spirit. I just think that's kind of confusing in light of John's time and in light of today's time as well. Okay, so uh, we also had this. Jesus Christ is called the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the rulers of the kings on earth. I believe all three of those are actually a reference. All three of those statements are references to verses in Psalm eighty eight. I think. But the one I want to hone in on is firstborn of the dead, especially because we had this question during our Bible study. What is a firstborn of the dead? Like, what do you what do you even do with that? And this comes back to resurrection. So in uh, Jesus's time, resurrection was hotly debated to the point that you actually see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, uh, they're recorded as having almost ripped Paul apart when the conversation of resurrection came up around Paul at one point. So just imagine these religious people having a WWE smackdown in the middle of the room because they're <laughs> they're just furious with Paul. Uh, one side, the Pharisees are like, yeah, revelation is real. Paul just told us it's real. Hey, this is great news. And then on the other side, the Sadducees are like, no, revelation. Or, or uh, Did I say revelation earlier? Sorry. A resurrection. No, resurrection is a lie. It's not real. We don't even have spiritual bodies after we die. It's just over. Life is materialistic. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees both fighting about uh, the resurrection and Paul getting in the middle of that. That's how serious of a conversation it was during that time. Um, but uh, even though they had this, this kind of big fight about this hot topic in their time, Jesus came and he started saying, no, resurrection is real. The Pharisees have it right on this one. Uh, though none of you understand how resurrection works because the Sadducees are like, okay, so one woman had seven husbands. Which one's the real husband in the resurrection? And Jesus is like, no, nobody's married in the resurrection. You, you don't understand the Bible at all. <laughs> Pretty big insult. Um, but you see Jesus kind of call them out on on uh, their understanding of the resurrection. They, they just don't get it. Um, but then Jesus not only begins to tell us that resurrection is real in a time where people were fighting about, is it real, is it not? But Jesus then dies 
and is resurrected, making him the very first person to experience the resurrection. Now, some might say, okay, well, Jamin, in the Old Testament, Elijah resurrected a kid, and in the New Testament, you have you have Jesus resurrect a few people, including Lazarus, and beyond Jesus, you have the disciples resurrect Dorcas and this kid who fell and, and died during a church service. So Jesus isn't the firstborn of the dead because he, he raised people before he died. And I would suggest to you that that's not an accurate understanding of resurrection. Resurrection, especially according to Paul, is a new kind of imperishable body that we put on one day and live for eternity. So uh, this body can't be killed. It seems to be a body that, I don't know, I, I don't know how it works, but I would suggest to you that maybe it can do the things that Jesus did after he was resurrected, because that would be considered Jesus living in a resurrected body, okay? So Jesus then walks through walls. Jesus can then just cross over the thin curtain between the the uh, world of heaven and the world of of humanity, right? He just ascends into heaven somehow. I, I don't know if we get that ability. That would be pretty cool, but I don't know. And we're given new heavens and new earths to live in, uh, implying like, you know, we, we put on new physical bodies that are imperishable, as Paul says, and we live on the new earth that Revelation paints towards the end of Revelation. So, That being said, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead in the fact that he put on this body first. We're like, okay, but Jamin, other people did it. No, those people were resurrected and then died again, implying they put on the same exact body that they were in before, right? We don't have Lazarus coming out of the tomb like, ah, everything's perfect. No, he smells bad. He's been dead for a few days. You got to go clean up his body and and then put him back together again. So, That's not resurrection in the sense that Jesus is resurrected, and that's not resurrection in the sense that Paul keeps talking about how we'll be resurrected, and uh, the rest of the Bible is talking about resurrection. So now that they believe resurrection is real, they look at Jesus, and they're like, he's the firstborn of the dead. He died, but then he came back from the death, uh, from the dead, and he's showing us that when he does this as the firstborn, he's telling all Christians, all followers, one day you too are going to rise from the dead and, and, and put on the same kind of life that I'm living in now. So that right there is kind of a glimpse as to what the firstborn of the dead means. Okay, picking it back up in Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Uh, We're called right there a kingdom of priests. That's important uh, because only the priests are the ones who have access to the throne of God. So uh, the people of Revelation, and you find this idea of a kingdom of priests throughout other parts of the New Testament, we are the people who have access to the presence of God. We get to enter into the Holy of Holies. Jesus is the high priest now, the, the Pope, if you will. Jesus gets to go all the way in there, and he invites us to, to come in as well and experience the, the fullness of God's presence and his whole, Holy Spirit, because we are a whole kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, only one clan of Israel could go into these places, could take care of these places, 
could uh, get close to the presence. Everybody else had to stay further away from the presence, but now we're all priests. We all have access to the throne of God. All right. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. He's coming on the clouds right there is a picture of, uh, uh, you know, Jesus surfing the clouds, but it's actually um, stolen (laughs) from somewhere else. And when I say that, uh, well, let me give you some background, okay? In uh, ancient times, there was a a popular god named Baal. And if you've read the Old Testament, you've seen his name a lot because Baal is always getting in the way of of, uh, God's people. He keeps seducing them into following him. So people keep turning away from the one true God, Yahweh, and following Baal instead. And the story of Baal pictures Baal kind of as a cloud rider, okay? He's the god of storms and the god of agriculture. And so uh, people kept turning to worship him, which uh, would make, you know, the prophets angry. And sometimes what the prophets would do in the Old Testament is they would steal pictures that everybody knew of someone else, or they'd steal narratives of, of someone else, and they'd implement it into, into the story of Yahweh so that they could usurp the other gods and, and say, no, Baal doesn't ride on the clouds. God, Yahweh, rides on the clouds. Baal doesn't bring storms and, and take care of agriculture. God brings storms and takes care of agriculture. God is the one riding the cloud, not Baal. And, and that's just a, a polemical way of like insulting and dissing the false gods and elevating Yahweh over them. So everyone would have heard like, ah, God is coming on the clouds. And then Daniel takes that picture and says, uh, or sorry, people would have thought Baal's riding on the clouds. Then Daniel takes that picture. He's like, no, the son of man is riding on the clouds. And then you fast forward to Revelation and John is like, ah, Jesus is coming on the clouds. John's saying Jesus is the son of man who who is what was pictured by Daniel. So you just see like the Bible playing off of itself, even though originally it was playing off of somebody's, uh, some, some other religion. This is not entirely uncommon. I recently just preached on chaos creatures, right? I talked about Leviathan. What's interesting, we didn't even get into this in my message. I do get into it in the book though. Um, Kaiju of Biblical Proportions. If you want a copy of that, just talk to me. I'll get you one. Uh, a digital one for free anyways. Um, But in this book, you see Leviathan uh, is actually a creature from the, from another religion. They, they took it because in that religion, you had Baal killing Leviathan and they just usurped that story. Like, no, God slays Leviathan. Baal doesn't kill Leviathan. God slays Leviathan. So again, they would just steal um, not even steal is the right word. They would usurp stories that made false gods look cool and look great. And then they just put Yahweh in it. Not to say that Yahweh actually like had a, a creature named Leviathan exactly, but rather that Yahweh is the one who who has all strength over Leviathan and is greater and better than Baal in every single way. So when Jesus is pictured riding on the clouds, it's that kind of thing. Uh, He's riding on the clouds. He's greater than the false gods. And he's fulfilling what Daniel said about the Son of Man, because Jesus is the Son of Man. All right. 
Picking up verse 8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who was and who is and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So it's long been held that uh, John is on the island of Patmos because he's in exile. Uh, There's different kinds of exile in ancient times, Uh, exile that's more severe, exile that's less severe. And based on how severe it was, sometimes had to do with your social social weight in society. Uh, On top of that, um, sometimes when the kings died who put you in exile, sometimes you could get back in. So we don't know how serious uh, exile was for John. But we do know, it seems, that he's in exile. It, it appears he's in exile uh, because he's been serving Jesus and because, in general, uh, um, Christians were oppressed in many different ways. You have stories of their bodies being turned into uh, flames. They'd just be set on fire to give light for garden parties and for events and things like that. So that's all the more reason Uh, why you see John talking about persecution that's coming soon, because they all were enduring incredible persecution. All right, continues. Uh, He says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day is typically Sunday, because that is when they would say Jesus was resurrected. Uh, An important thing for today too, right? When we come together on the day, we believe that Jesus was resurrected every single week so that we can recall what he did. Uh, and saying, when he says, I was in the spirit, it's kind of like a trance-like state, okay? So again, it's not eyes rolled up into his head and he's writing down uh, this stuff in a book, but rather he's caught up in a vision. And he just says, I was in the spirit. So we don't know how detailed it was. He maybe didn't even know how detailed it was. Paul at one point said that uh, he was caught up into the third heaven and he doesn't know if it was in body or out of body. Only God knows. So maybe that's... a a common feature in these kind of trances is like you're caught up, but you, you, it's hard to give details otherwise as to what's going on. So, uh, he's in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he says, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna, to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. All right, these seven lampstands, if you were to fast forward to verse 20, before you try to figure out what the seven lampstands are, just take a a word out of John's instruction here. Um, Jesus tells him uh, that these seven lampstands are the the seven churches. Okay. So uh, it says in verse 20, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So just like Jesus sometimes helped his uh, disciples out to try to understand parables. So here in Revelation, uh, there's some things that he just straight up tells us maybe because he didn't think we'd figure it out ourselves or something. I don't know. So the, the, the picture that John paints is here's Jesus and there's seven seven churches all around him staring right at him, giving off off his light or, or some kind of vision uh, like that. Uh, we also saw that that Jesus was wearing a robe with a golden sash around his chest. 
Um, there are different ways that we could interpret this. Uh, most commonly, people say that Jesus is wearing the high priest's robe. So, uh, since we are a kingdom of priests, which was just said a few minutes ago, and Jesus is the high priest who is the Pope, you know, the one who gets into the Holy of Holies and then invites us into the presence. Um, there's kind of this uh, understanding right here that Jesus would be wearing a long robe with a golden sash around his chest and that this is kind of the royal priestly garb of what a high priest would wear. Uh, I, I don't entirely know if we can prove that that's what he's wearing because it's not very descriptive enough, but to me that makes a lot of sense. So I, I wouldn't mind just kind of sitting with, with that as many believe it. Uh, the hairs of his head were white, it says, like white wool, like snow. And right there you see, you know, uh, God is pictured in ancient times as the ancient of days. So you kind of have this idea of God being white-haired, an old man, very wise, and uh, that could all fit that very easily. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, before you get carried away with this again, too, just fast forward to verse 20, which says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. So seven lampstands, seven churches, seven stars, seven angels um, over churches. I do want to stop right there really quick. Why are angels stars? Oh, this is kind of a long story, but we did just talk about the little G gods in our podcast this week. That might be helpful to go back and talk to, uh, to listen to. In ancient times, the stars were, were the gods. That was just kind of the way that people looked at them, or at least they were like supernatural beings of sorts, because up there is the heavens and down here is the earth. So if you were to look up there, uh, those shining things off in the distance, you, you would just often think like, okay, those are, those are the the gods. Uh, and right here, you kind of see John just kind of taking a little bit of outside belief there, uh, which, but not entirely outside because you'll kind of see this figured into the Old Testament as well. Uh, John's just saying like, okay, so the spiritual beings that are up there, uh, first off. They're angels. Uh, those are the spiritual beings that you have as these stars. And and secondly, John wants people to understand like Jesus is the one who holds the stars. Jesus is the one who holds the spiritual beings. Nothing has authority more than him. Nothing has power more than him. All spiritual beings, whatever they might uh, be classified as, they're in Jesus's hand. He is in control. Uh, and that's what Jesus is pictured here, right? He's holding seven stars in his hand. So he has complete control over everything, whether uh, God made it in the physical realm or the spiritual realm. It is all God's. God is the creator of everything. He holds it all in his hand. Uh, and then from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. Uh, pause right there. Um People, when they read Revelation, often see a lot of violence. Uh, for me, of course, that's hard um, because when I look at the things that Jesus did and because I'm very Christocentric, that is, I put all my attention on Jesus when I read the whole Bible, uh, I don't see Jesus being violent. I don't see him uh, 
doing harsh things. So for me, I kind of come away with a very pacifistic uh, outlook on the Bible, or I'm sorry, at least on on the ways of God. I see him as a very peaceful uh, being. So when I see things like swords, I'm like, oh man, Jesus has a sword. This is hard. But uh, at least pause here and recognize like the sword is in his mouth, which means we're dealing with metaphor because swords don't come out of people's mouths. All right. So he's got a sharp two-edged sword, but it's coming out of his mouth, which means like his words are his weapon, his his judgments, because that's kind of what you use swords for, for ultimatums, right? His ultimatums, his judgments, his his very power is in his tongue, the words that he speaks. Just as God could speak creation into being, so Jesus speaks the ultimatums into the world. He he really doesn't even have a need for a sword because his tongue is a two-edged one, sharp, it does the work for him. And then it says, his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Uh, this this really stuck out to me uh, when I was kind of preparing for this Bible study. So I do want to look at that verse really quick. When we think of Jesus' face shining like the sun, we might think of Moses, who when he spent time in God's presence, when he came down off the mountain, his face was shining brightly too, right? Uh, but one of the stories that uh, stands out to me even more in light of this passage is the transfiguration, uh, because Jesus is kind of shown to some extent in glory at the transfiguration in which his face kind of shines like the sun, and his clothes seem to radiate light themselves. So what if... Uh, We're looking at Jesus here. What if John caught a glimpse of Jesus in the fullness of his glory? And glory is a hard word to define because it gets used in several different ways. Uh, But there is this book I read, The Glory of God, which kind of speculates during the transfiguration. What if like the glowing presence of Jesus was something that he already possessed? Uh, We just couldn't see it in his human form. But during the transfiguration... It maybe was revealed to the disciples, look at the glory upon him, look at the way that it shines off of him. And here's what's interesting, too, is that uh, one of the Gospels says, because, you know, it wasn't just Jesus at the Transfiguration, it wasn't just the disciples at Transfiguration, but Moses and Elijah were at the Transfiguration, too. And one of the Gospels says that Moses and Elijah were there, it seems, in their own glory, as though to show this idea like you know, be beyond death when we come close to God's presence and and put on uh, kind of these, well, in this case, they were, you know, spirits. They weren't resurrected bodies, it seems. Uh, but what if uh, in this case, we, we find ourselves glowing? We find ourselves in the glory of God, you know, because uh, Jesus was glowing, but Moses and Elijah glowing as well. So with that being said, it's just kind of interesting to think about. Was Jesus' face shining like the sun? Was that just like purely metaphor? Or was that kind of like because he came in contact with Jesus in his uh, uh, resurrected state? Uh, Because even when you look at the end of the Bible, eventually there's no sun, there's no moon, there's no need for them because God is, is already all the light that we need in the fullness of his glory and the Shekinah that, that comes on the earth. Okay, picking up verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. 
and I have the keys of death in Hades. I paused on this verse for so long when I was uh, getting ready for this Bible study because it just struck me. You know those moments when you have verses that just like hit you so hard and and you just like kind of take him back? Well, that was me on this verse. I don't even fully know why. It wasn't like a, a new revelation to me. It was just like a deeper hit of the revelation, I guess. But Right here, you have Jesus usurping uh, uh, Satan. You have him usurping death and hell itself. He goes to get keys that uh, it seems to imply like he he took them. That uh, It's not that it was outside of his control, but perhaps it was given over to Satan, since Satan is kind of like the Lord of death, if you will. Um, but you see... Um, you see throughout ancient times that it was thought that maybe uh, God kind of handed out keys to certain spiritual beings he had created, and that there were several keys that he kept for himself, uh, which when you look at this in kind of that light, it's like, wow. So uh, here's here's Jesus. He walks up to, to Satan. Satan thinks he's just one because he's beat Jesus on the cross, he thinks. And now here's Jesus just like, hey. Grab his keys out of his hand, be like, catch you later, and then just resurrected and, and just say, like, what have I done? What just happened? You know? So now Jesus holds the keys to death in Hades. And and now we know that when Jesus says that he's going to overthrow Satan and overthrow hell, it's like, yeah, all the power is in his hand. Satan has been usurped. Satan has lost. It, it's all Jesus's power. And he uh is able to now declare that we'll have resurrected bodies and that we will uh, live forevermore with him because he has the keys of death in Hades. So, like, we have every reason to to believe in that promise, right? Because Jesus himself holds it. Death, death entered the world because we sinned, right? Adam and Eve were supposed to be able to eat from the tree of life and and seemingly live forever. Death did not enter the world as a a plausibility. Death didn't enter the world as something that would happen to Adam and Eve until after they had eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which they weren't supposed to do. Now that they had fallen for Satan's trap and eaten from the tree that Satan told them to eat from, now they die. as Almost as though like Satan's like, welcome to my kingdom. Welcome... Welcome to death. This is my world. And now Jesus just goes and yoink, I'll take those. And now he's got the keys. Still, I'm not fully sure what it was, but something about that image, that verse right there just grabbed to my heart when I, I was reading through it. Uh, man, just the excitement Satan must have felt on killing Jesus and then the complete just <laughs> blowing him apart with all right, I'm headed back up there now. Catch you later and taking the keys with me and so on. Okay, we're almost done. Verse 19, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Again, that kind of shows you like timing. It's not all beyond us. There's some that already took place. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, seven churches are the angels of the seven uh, sorry, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. That brings us to an end, but let me answer one more question that you might be thinking right there. 
we have this statement that the um, that the uh, that there's this angel over each of these seven churches. That's kind of confusing statement. We're not fully sure what to do with it. Some of you are like, so wait, does every church have an angel? What what does this mean exactly? So let's uh, let's let's talk about this briefly. First off, again, the word angel means messenger. So some scholars who are uh, especially enlightened and don't want to see supernatural beings here, uh, well, they do have the ability to fight and say, is it really an angel or is it just like John had messengers? Uh, perhaps since John could have been like a prophet, perhaps John like had a group of prophets called messengers or something, so uh, and called angels. So some would say, like, it's just humans, that John's writing these letters for his angels, for his people to then deliver as messengers to the seven churches. You could go that route. You could fight that grammatically. But look, having angels over churches is by far one of the least weird things about the book of Revelation, okay? So the idea that that God's like, all right, write these letters for the angels uh, the supernatural beings over these churches. I don't know. That's just compared to everything else we're about to see in Revelation. It's not all that odd. Plus, like, you know, there's just so much supernatural stuff going on here. It's not too weird to think of angels working at churches or watching over churches. If that was the case, though, that leads us to another question. Does every church have an angel then? what What's that all about? And I don't think we necessarily need to come to that conclusion. Um but what we could say is, uh, I, I guess I, I would say that this passage, you know, again, we're in Revelation where things kind of get confusing between metaphor and and whatnot. So to to make like a, a bold doctrinal statement, yes, every church has an angel based on this one passage is kind of weird. But it, it wouldn't be entirely out of the idea of the way that they thought in Jesus's time, Okay. And the reason I say this is because as we uncover the Dead Sea Scrolls, which gives us a lot of information about the way that uh, um, religious people thought under under Yahweh around around God's time, we see that they believed that angels were present when they worshipped. So when human beings would get together, they believed that celestial beings would join them in worshipping God during that time. Therefore, it wouldn't be crazy to think that uh, um, this could be saying, like, there's angels over areas when we worship. It wouldn't be crazy within their mindset to think that when they came together, that angels joined them in worshiping as well. So it lines up with culturally what they're thinking, plus it lines up with something that Paul says elsewhere. When Paul says that... uh, you know, women um, should wear veils. And I know, you're like, how on earth is this this connected? Uh, We've talked about this in church before, so maybe it won't surprise you. But uh, Paul said women should wear veils. Why? Because of the angels. In other words, his implication was, back in Genesis 6, angels, the sons of God, which Paul understood to be angels, they thought that women were attractive, and then they... Uh, took wives, human wives, and uh, procreated and created the Nephilim, right? That's Genesis 6. So Paul, thinking of this tradition, especially because that tradition's super elaborated on in 1 Enoch, 
which was a very popular book around the time that Paul was around. Um, Here's Paul saying, look, women, when you come to church, wear veils. Why? Because of the angels. Why? Well, apparently when we worship, angels are present and angels have struggled over women before. So just protect your heads. Uh, Don't let them fall for your beauty. Now, uh, don't worry. That doesn't mean that you have to wear veils today. We're not, we can't get into the other dimension, but to make it simple enough, the Greeks of, of Paul's time thought that like hair was a sexual organ. So Paul, to some extent, is like cover your, your sexual organs with a veil because angels might fall for your, your sexuality if it's just kind of all hanging out there. So all that being said, don't worry, don't have to wear veils. <coughs> But that that is that is a long, strange look at Revelation. So if you just heard all this and you're like, okay, I'd like to learn more about that, then I really suggest you come to our Revelation Bible study. It's Tuesday nights from 6 to 7.30. Uh, I'm not planning on doing a podcast on every single book that we do. I Really, I just plan on doing this one as an introduction for anyone who misses the first day. Uh, or anyone who misses any of the beginnings, so that when you show up on whatever day you show up, you'll be like, okay, I've already kind of heard what we're talking about. I've got a little bit of a gist of it. So don't expect me to keep putting these out. If you'd like to learn more and dive deeper with us and hear more insight like this, that we're doing our best to understand together, then um, just uh, join us for, for the Bible study. And I will say this, uh, even if I've sounded crazy at all in some of the things I've said today, I, I work really hard to not read any um, just general material, especially on the book of Revelation. I work very hard to try to read uh, what uh, uh, scholars are saying because they're the ones I trust. And I think what you'll find, uh, as you've maybe seen today, is that scholars will say some pretty crazy things because the things that they research and the history that they find as to what people believed, it ends up being a little crazy 2,000 years ago as compared to how we think today. They were not enlightened Westerners. They were smart people who thought differently and had a different concept of how the universe worked and and uh, uh, and all that. So if we want to understand what, what John is saying, then we need to understand what the world was like then. And if that makes Revelation look crazy in a different light, then that is a much better crazy to be in than a modern person trying to read this without any research and trying to come to conclusions to what it means without even knowing what an apocalyptic genre is like. Okay, (laughs) we've been talking forever as evidenced by the fact that I can't breathe anymore. So hope that helps you out and hope we see you at a Revelation Bible study down the road. 